0: It's more or less true that less can be more. Moreover it's less or more true that more can be less. You see more over or less under it's a matter of how you look at it more or less. Stick around for more on the topic of less. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell and this is watching america
1: on my life watching america on my life panic in america oh 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 in america from whrv norfolk
0: this is watching america
1: You take away subtraction you get what's left Subtraction You take away subtraction you get the difference.
0: Welcome to Watching America. You know, there are certain books that come along that I immediately think, oh, this is going to be good. And certainly this applies to a book entitled "Subtract yes, subtract the untapped science of less. The author is Lydie Klotz. Now, some of you who are in the realm of uh, extreme interest in soccer may recognize that name because he played midfield for a long time uh, here in the United States. But then he went on to do other things. While in the Garden State, for instance, he went on to design, of all things, schools. That's right, in New Jersey. And after that, wound up being the Copenhaver Associate Professor at the University of Virginia. Now, this research that he's worked on for a number of years now focuses on really underexplored overlaps, if you will, of knowledge between engineering and behavioral science. Now, he's done very, very well uh, with previous assignments working for various entities. He has done work with the U.S. Department of Energy and Homeland Security, the National Institute of Health, the World Bank Resources for the Future… Uh, Eviden, and Ideas 42, no less. Through the years, he's been awarded over $10 million in competitive research funding. That's no small task for anyone in academia, let me tell you. And he's also been a regular columnist for the uh, Behavioral Scientist magazine, and uh, has contributed to many publications, including the Washington Post. So it is not without reason that I am delighted to have him here. Dr. Lydie Klotz, nice to have you here, and welcome to Watching America.
1: Thanks, Alan, for that really generous introduction. I will clarify for uh, for your audience that mm-hmm. um, a question my son asked me. I said to him, "I said we're putting in a three million dollar research proposal, and I think we got a good chance of getting it." And he says, "Well, how much of that money are we gonna get?" And I said, Zero. <laughs> right. <precisely. laughs> so it's basically you you uh, you write these proposals to give yourself you know, $10 million worth of work to do that doesn't uh, immediately change your salary. But it's a, it's a great, it's a great it, it, job. It, it and, is a great and and thing. The funding and is and, nice. and yeah. once in a
0: while, it's nice to kind of be able to kind of insert reason for a trip into a legitimate reason for a trip, but it's always nice to go abroad if you, if you can do that. And uh, under the, uh, you know, under the realm of research,
1: of course. Yep, definitely. I get to see some amazing places and talk to some amazing people Uh and, and there are there are benefits to having the funds.
0: Well, as we're talking about amazing things, let me just first of all say this uh with uh, a genuine respect. There are certain people who have wonderful names, and you think, gosh, if they aren't authors, they ought to be. And Lydie Klotz <laughs> is a name like that. May I ask, how did you get the name Lydie?
1: I think Lydie's a good author, and Klotz is a little clunky, but um the so Lydie is a family last name, and um it's uh we think it's on both sides of the family and Mm -hmm. it's German origin or German slash Dutch origin. And, uh, and so, yeah, so they, they stuck it on my first name Um, that the the, uh, there's a famous paleontologist from a while back uh, named back when paleontologists were famous named Joseph Mm. Leidy. And that's, we think that my mom's side of the family, there might be, she had an uncle Jimmy Leidy that may have been related to Joseph Leidy. And uh, the only other lighty i've met was uh on an indian reservation in montana this um young girl i think she must have been 10 or 11 at the time who had been named lighty by her parents because they were fans of the paleontologist and she was like she was so excited to meet another lighty but it is a good uh, it's a good author name it's definitely a good google name right my parents it, it had is, good foresight.
0: Yeah. and uh, i have to you know uh, uh, an old vaudevillian joke comes to mind which goes you know that's no lighty That's my wife. (laughs) You've probably heard that one. Okay, Um, so it's spelled uh, L-E-I-D-Y for those interested in purchasing the book and last name K-L-O-T-Z or Z. Um, First of all, I want to have you, if you'd be so kind as to tell us the initial story concerning your son when he was about two and a half years of age at the time that brought about the genesis uh, for you writing this book in the first place.
1: Yeah, I was playing Legos with my son and um, we were building with those Duplo blocks and we were building a bridge basically. Um, and the problem we had was the bridge wasn't level and one of the columns was shorter than the other column. So I turned around behind me to grab a block to add to the shorter column. And by the time I had turned back around, my son had removed a block from the longer column. And you know that is you know just seared into my memory even more so now because it's written in the book and I get to tell the story to other people like you, Alan, but, um, it's, I had always been interested in kind of minimalist design and su- design for sustainability and kind of doing more with less, but this was the moment that really kind of honed me in on this act of subtracting this act of taking things away. So what my son did in that moment was take away the block from the structure. Um, and then also it was, um, Small enough, literally you could hold this Lego example in your hands. And I, in fact, would carry it around in my backpack and give it to other people and test it on them. So it had value is on testing it on other people, but also in explaining to other people what I was talking about. And so I took that Lego bridge to my friend and brilliant collaborator Gabe Adams. Uh, and I said, Here's here's the test. I thought she was gonna you know, subtract like Ezra, because she's a genius. And because I had been talking her to her about my interest in this kind of minimalist design for a long time. And uh, she added, but then after she added, she's like, Oh, and now I get what you've been saying all along. And we can totally test this. And, you know, so after that, we were on our way to tens of thousands of hours worth of experiments, kind of testing the phenomenon. And, you know, to make a long story short, in the experiments, what we found really mapped back to what happened to me in that moment which was mm. in the bridge moment with when my with my son Ezra was that my first instinct when presented with this situation in this case the situation was a leg bridge but you know it also applies to situations as we will we'll find out to our calendars to the thoughts that are in our head when we're presented with these situations that we want to make better our first instinct is to think what can i add to it um which isn't so bad but what often happens is people do what I would have done if Ezra wasn't there, and add and move on without even considering subtraction as a way to make things better. And, and as a result, we don't even consider one of the most basic ways to make change.
0: So, in a sense, Ezra's um, Lego was the equivalent of Newton's apple falling. I mean, that was it. Just
1: oh, yeah, it yeah. Might be a that's a bit lofty, a...
0: but I think it. I think there's a, there's a parallel there. <laughs>
1: there's there's a yeah, a parallel. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's brilliant. Uh, you're, you're exactly right.
0: So um, the question I have is the, the issue that we always want to add on, obviously. Uh, and you are basically saying, you know, we, we tend to consider more than the essentials. We're, we're uh, quite entrenched with the superfluous very often, and we want to add to add. Is that a psychological bearing indicating our own sense of inadequacy that we have to supplement that we can't just be at peace and study something first.
1: That's interesting. I um, I think one of the most fundamental reasons for this um, could be, if you map it back to evolutionary reasons, is this desire to display competence. So it's kind of the opposite mm-hmm. side of this inadequacy coin. Um, and you think, oh, displaying competence, that's a totally human thing to do. But, you know, bowerbirds building their famous nests, right? These are these... Mm-hmm beautiful nest that the male bowerbirds build and, and the males build the nests and the females go around look at which nest they like the best and decide which male to mate with based on that but then the females go and build an actual nest that provides shelter for the kids <laughs> so the whole point yes. of the or not kids but baby bowerbirds the mm-hmm. whole point of the the ceremonial nest is just to show that the male is effective at interacting with the world. And so yeah, this biological desire to display competence is it's much easier to do that by adding, right? Because if mm-hmm. I if I add a block, if I add a bridge, if I add a, a toy to Ezra's collection. I'm I'm displaying competence. And, and if you take something away, I mean, it is possible to display competence by taking something away, but the results of what you've done are invisible. And, you know, so there's a chance that nobody's going to notice. So I do think that there's a, a, a strong part of what's going on here is related to that.
0: It's interesting in a marketing corporate uh, sense when, for instance, one considers Apple products, which are were known mm-hmm. at least for their uh, great elegance found in, in the supposed simplicity. I say the supposed simplicity because in actual mm-hmm. fact, as we all know, the simplicity concealed the complexity of the product. Um, and, and fashion falls into this. Uh, you know, Famously, Steve Jobs said that he didn't like buttons that turned off. That's why on most of his devices there's a turn on, but you have to go through another procedure to, to turn things off. Um, is it is it an issue of fashion that has come around? So, you know, the old expression, everything old is new again. We are attracted to the simple because it's soothing, perhaps?
1: My favorite everything old is new again angle here is that the people like jobs and, you know, throughout history... Da Vinci and Michelangelo and other Renaissance artists are talking about subtracting in various ways and how this can make things different. And then all the way back to um, a quote that's attributed to Lao Tzu is to to gain knowledge, add things every day, to gain wisdom, subtract things every day. And I think that some of the best evidence, actually, that we've been doing this for a long time, because we don't need an adding reminder, right? You're not talking about the, the brilliant uh, Microsoft engineer who added another feature to this, you know, the, um, what was the Palm pilot? Uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're talking about Steve jobs who did this counterintuitive thing and then people, people liked it. Um, so I think that it's, uh, you know, it's always been counterintuitive, which suggests that it's always been kind of our first instinct to add.
0: Well, let's go to the issue of aesthetics for a moment. Um, yeah. My background is in filmmaking and, and uh, certainly cinematic things and photography and, and design. So I'm attracted mm-hmm. to this as a, as a concept. Um, there are certain things that are indistinguishably beautiful for the simplicity. I'll just name mm-hmm. some objects. The broom. You really cannot improve on the broom. Now, yes, we we have devices that will, you know, crawl around our elaborate carpets and um, basically sweep for us in our absence while we're at work. The broom is gorgeous. Its it's utility is very, very clear, but it's also a a lovely design thing that has lasted millennia. Um, Mm -hmm. The bicycle. The bicycle is an item that looks like it always should have been made. It's just it's glorious. The front wheel I'm not talking about the penny farthing from the initial days but the actual bicycle <laughs> that we know today. The ice cream cone. Brilliant. Uh very very simple that which contains oh, yeah. the ice cream we consume. Um mm-hmm. is is there a if you will a, a a a inclination within humans to seek simple or is your hypothesis your theory that um, basically it's it's rarely attainable, or at least rarely sought after. Uh,
1: I mean, what the research most directly says is that we think adding first, um, and I think, but you know, broadening out from the the specific research, I think it's that it's it's harder to take away. You know, we we can we think of simplicity, and we're like, oh, that should be easy. But those examples that you talked about, I mean, the ice cream cone, for example, I'm sure somebody thought of putting the ice cream in a cup before they um before they thought of putting it in a cone and but the cone was was better and i said so we have this tended so so it's not that we can't think of subtracting right Ezra, i could have thought of the subtracting option on ezra's bridge if i had just gone past the first thought that popped into my head and it's kind of the same at we when we do these more intentional designs right where you're saying okay I, I I need to solve this problem. People can't just grab a scoop of ice cream and put it in their hand. That's never gonna work. So we got to have a container for it. And you know, the first thing that you think is, oh, maybe we do a bowl. And you know, that basically works, right? And, and but then to get to to get to less requires this act of subtracting and to say, oh, well we've got ice cream in a bowl now. Is there a way that we could actually make this better? And then somebody might think, oh, maybe we should take away this bowl. And then, you, okay, we put a waffle around it. And it's the same kind of thing with Steve Jobs, right? It's not like they didn't know all these complicated features that everybody else was putting in their products, but they said, okay, we've got this thing. Uh, and now now what do we strip away, right? And, and that's where this act of subtracting is so key is to get us from this, this state of, Good enough more to really great less. So, so that's how I think about it. I mean, and, I, and I love your design examples. I think they're, um, I, especially the broom. Um, so yeah, that's what do you think about that? I mean, you have more background in design than I do, probably.
0: Well, I mean, not official. I mean, only as far as the aesthetics of, de, of designers appreciating aesthetics, mesense, yeah. and the aesthetics, how a picture looks and what have you. But I, I am taken with various things. And sometimes you just look at something, like for instance, I have at home, I inherited actually. Uh, a weighted pen knife and it is uh, I'm not into knives you know some, some people are really into knives you get the ginso you get it you know and all that stuff <laughs> late night television you know you get the destroyer You, you know. but I, I just have a little tiny pen knife but I, I just marvel at its beauty it's got a wood handle but it's perfectly balanced and I think God, this is a gorgeous thing it really is uh, I guess I should use it on Newton's apple I don't know but the the, the point is it's it's gloriously wonderful and yet Um, there are a few things made like that. But when they are made, we we respond. You made me actually remember, uh, speaking of film and animated short, and some of the best animation of short films, probably from 30 years ago, and it depicted an ice cream stand. And it was very, very mm. simple. There's just a simple sign. It said, ice cream, 25 cents. And you suddenly have these, this crowd of, you know, uh, amorphic people just going to this ice cream stand. And then there's another ice cream stand that goes adjacent to it. And it says, super ice cream. And now the crowd goes to the super ice cream. And then the other side goes, super duper, better ice cream. And then the crowd goes back <laughs> to super duper. And it just builds and builds and builds. And to the finale is suddenly one of these ice cream parlor places just go back to good ice cream. And the crowd goes back <laughs> to that again. I think that's uh, sort of what we experience. I want to ask you about governmental application. Um, I need to hmm. remind the audience who I'm speaking with. I'm speaking with Leidy Klotz. Uh, that's L-E-I-D-Y-K-L-O-T-Z. And uh, he is a doctor at the University of Virginia. Yay. All my three sons went there. And uh, he has written a very important book called Subtract the Untapped Science of Less. We've all heard that less is more. I want to ask in, in the realm of politics, uh, one of the frustrations that people of any stripe of affiliation with a uh, party has, be it Democrat, Republican, uh, any other independent party, is the fact that when the federal government builds an agency, it never goes away even if it's not mm-hmm. needed. It, the proliferation just seems to be endless, no matter who's in power. Uh, and and you, based on what you prove by your work, one would say, God, if we could just eliminate some of these departments, we could actually get things done. And yet people loathe, as you've indicated, to subtract and to, uh, if you will, clear the weeds so that things can... F- function as, as they should. How have you seen this witness, this whole theory of yours in other realms, perhaps politically, socially, dare I say it, even in the faculty lounge at uh, the University of Virginia? <laughs>
1: faculty are the worst at it, right? I mean, I think <laughs> one of the, <laughs> we, uh, the code yeah. of yeah. the the code of federal regulations. So this is all the rules from all the federal agencies has grown um, basically 17 times bigger since 1950. Um, so exact, you know, proof of, of what you're saying. And I would, I would venture to guess that our faculty regulations have grown even more than that. Um, I think that, you know, there is a little, we, we, with Ezra's bridge, the issue was, I didn't think about it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it is this is a great point here that or a great opportunity to bring up the fact that even after you do think of something there are other barriers to taking away and that's something that the book delves into and so for example you know it, in some cases people well and you've just suggested that we should remove some of these agencies right and uh and so it's not that people aren't thinking of it but then the problem becomes oh well people are gonna lose their jobs or there's, you know, money invested in this. And it's just, it's hard to do. Um, there ties into some other psychology about loss aversion, right. Where, you know, this Mm -hmm. is Kahneman and Tversky's famous work of we're basically twice as disappointed to lose something as we are happy to gain something of the same value. Um, so there, there are these other kind of forces working against less. One thing, one really proactive, um, way of addressing this, I learned about in British Columbia, and they, uh, you know, had the same creep in the number of, of laws that I think any organization experiences. Uh, and the way they solved it was by when people came with to them with a new proposal for a, for a law, you also had to come with two that were already on the books that should be taken away. And yes, that worked yes. really well in turning yeah. it around. It's, and it's relatively simple. Um, and it also what they... You know the story i was told anyway is that it they don't even need that rule anymore because it totally shifted the mindset to where people were thinking not just add 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 is the way to make things better but also that taking away can make things better um so that those are some examples that i've i've learned of from the from the policy world
0: Well, we're talking about marketing a lot, and that wasn't my intention. It's just that ready examples seem to pop up in the mind regarding these things. Going back with the analogy in reference to the ice cream stores, a company makes something wondrous, uh, terrific, and they seem unable just to stay with it. Now, I don't suspect it's always because sales drop. Uh, The example that comes to my mind is Volvo Corporation. Volvo Mm -hmm. made the, uh, in my estimation, one of the most perfect vehicles ever made, which was a Volvo 240DL wagon. I had two of them. Um, Mm -hmm. They were very simple, wind-up windows. uh, They weren't electric. They could turn on a dime. They were great for hauling things, and yet they retained a a high degree of dignity and um, uh, beauty to them. And then Ford Corporation came along and bought Volvo. And all that went out, and all the ticky-tacky stuff that you really don't want was starting to be applied to this otherwise wondrous vehicle. Uh, and now, incidentally, Volvo has been sold uh, uh, by Ford and is now run by a Chinese company, uh, mm. which is Zixing, uh Geely Holding Group. And now they've tried to uh, revive Volvo. I just wonder, why can't the engineers just say, I mean, admittedly, there's emission issues that they've got to have and different, you know, electronics for the catalytic converters and all this kind of stuff going on. Why can't they just come back with, a, a, forgive me, a bloody good car that they had before and say, yeah, it worked. <laughs> it was great. People want it. They miss it. They bemoan the fact that they can't go in any vehicle 300,000 miles like you could in the 240 TL. What's, what's the objection, do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a little bit of that competence, I think, right? Where hey, we need to show that we're engineers, we need to engineer something. And when, you, when and then there's also just a financial incentive. I mean, I think about this, I engineer things on a bigger scale. So like buildings and bridges and infrastructure. And if you're the engineering firm that comes back and says, hey, you actually don't need to add a lane to that highway. You need to, you know, <laughs> remove a segment. Uh, you're you're not going to get paid as much. Um,
0: so HD the money, HD money it, coming through. Okay, got it. <laughs> yeah. So I think there's
1: a big, um, a big financial incentive to add those add those little bells and whistles. Um, but but yeah, I, it is a is a problem. Is the DL two forty? So is that what a precursor to like the what are the XC? Uh, the, 60s or yes, whatever exactly right yeah. yes okay and
0: and they, and they were just they were just you know the, the term used to be used uh not disparagingly but actually with affection a swedish brick i mean they were just virtually indestructible <laughs> yeah. wonderful cars and
1: uh, well it's funny because like the volvo i mean i have a volvo and the because i because i have two kids and the whole point is the safety right, the, right. that's the, distinguish- they've, they've for me, the that distinguishing for me the distinguishing feature yeah. of a volvo is the safety and uh and that's all I wanted. And so I paid for these other things. But um, I would have been happy if they still had the, the the basic one, the brick.
0: Let me make a statement. And you can either agree with it or challenge it uh, as, you, as you see fit. Um, but okay. I'm, I'm going to push a little bit here. It seems Good. to me, we just talked about money. And we, yes, we recognize that we, we all need to put food on the table. But uh, on some level, is simplicity a matter of of the exercising of integrity.
1: Hmm. What do you mean by integrity in this case? Well,
0: to have the integrity to say, this is better, and just because I can make more money at it, I'm not going to slap the doodads on. Um, I'll give you an example, okay? Um, Mm -hmm. I I have some friends uh, who live in Surrey in England, which is a gorgeous county, and uh, they've done well in life. They have a very, very nice estate, and... Uh, They live literally down the street from Eric Clapton. uh, And Hmm. uh, it's it's this gorgeous house. I stayed at their house as a guest and I needed to simply iron a shirt. And they said, oh, Alan, we've got this great iron. And so I went upstairs to iron my shirt. And the thing was virtually, it seemed, I mean, said he in hyperbole, but it seemed like the size of a yacht. It certainly resembled a yacht. It had so many (laughs) flipping buttons on it and everything and different water chamber compartments. All I wanted to do Lighty was just simply steam my shirt and make it work. Okay, right, right. It was it was ridiculous, and you have to say at some point, ah, okay. Is is there integrity in just saying, what's the utility that I'm desiring to take out wrinkles from this garment, from this cloth, and anything that does that should should suffice. But no, we've got to go for show. We've got to go for big. We've got to go for expensive, and uh, in the process, have headache. I, th- I think a lot of people. Correct me if I'm wrong, enjoy going to, for instance, In-N-Out Burger in California and elsewhere in the the southwest part of the United States. You have a very limited Mm -hmm. menu, and you get what you want, and you know what it is, and it's great. Um, Mm -hmm. In the concept of being an engineer and a designer as you are of big, large, heavy things, uh, things that can hurt you if they're not designed correctly – Uh, Is there a point that when you are drafting and you, you know, the the old days of the, now we do it all with computers, of course, but before you had software and you just would look at your blueprints and just saying, this is elegant, this is right. This is the good way to do it. I have the keystone to put in place over the arch. It's going to hold.
1: Yeah. I, it's interesting because at some point, it's not like that all the time, right? One of the things I learned about in doing the research for the book is you know, there's this kind of culture of, of busyness too. So not just more physical stuff is better, but also more being busy is like this badge of honor, right? So mm. people will say, Hey, how are you doing lady? And I'll say, Oh, geez, I've got, you know, so many projects going on. I've got this book, I've got all my research students. I've, and uh you're kind of bragging, you're humble bragging about being busy. <laughs> and, um, but then, you know, I learned that, there have been cultures in the past or even like in Italy, for example, where when a mark of wealth is leisure. Um, and so you're not bragging about being busy and it's like, hey, the look at that guy. He's got so much free time and doesn't have to worry about this huge iron that he needs to move around his house. And so like having fewer kind of burdens is a mark of really having made it. And people will like devote their the resources to that. Um, so I certainly agree with you, Alan, that it does seem, it you know, the evidence is all around us, right, that we're just, blank. we think that um, this more is going to make us happier or is going to impress people. Um, but I, I think that's part of the issue here, right, is, you know, fundamentally what we talk about is that we don't subtract to make things better. Um, and one of the issues is that we don't even see subtracting as, a possibility to make things better that those two things are just fundamentally in opposition when in reality when you've got an existing situation whether it's you know your uh, estate next to eric clapton's house or whether it's you know my house in in charlottesville you know we can change it by taking things away and by adding to it and just seems like we we do the the latter a lot more
0: Certainly there's the overusage of the word awesome which is applied to pizzas and to <laughs> everything other than what we would venerate and and, uh, and and hold in high esteem. But uh I sometimes uh, am awed by the genius of people who perhaps many would look by and say, Oh, well they're they're not creative and I'm talking now about um the the craftsperson or the mm-hmm. uh the the technician or the if you're a person tra- trained in a trade who can just instantly look at something and remedy it. An example would be uh, my garden. Um, I have an umbrella, as most people do, I think, if they're fortunate to have a back garden. And I have an umbrella that goes around a patio furniture. And the rope thing broke. You know, that keeps it up. You know, you turn the little wheel and and it goes up, right? And it broke. And I was with somebody and they said, well, you don't need to buy a new one. And I go, well, what do you do? And he says, just take a drill. Drill a hole in the aluminum or aluminum, and so you drill a hole going through, and then you just take a little bolt, hold it in, insert it, and actually it's faster, and it's much better. Again, detracting. Uh So I took away the rope and the little spindle thing. It was brilliant. There are some people, aren't there, Lydie, who just seem to be gifted with this kind of ability.
1: Yeah, I, I'm so glad you brought that up. And again, it's not that we can't do this. It's just left to our own devices. We tend not to think of it. And I think there's an open question about the role of expertise here, an open research question. I mean, for practical purposes, there's no question that some people are just really good at doing this. Uh, uh, you you, know, you mentioned these craftspeople and one group of people that I've been hearing a lot from after writing the book is are coders. And I mean that's a, a craft um and they, they say that you know oftentimes they're incentivized by to add code. They say if you know we get paid by the line. So it's kind of the same um same thing that i was talking about with the engineers building roads you know the more you build the more you get paid and uh but at the same time they know that if you can do the same thing in fewer lines that's inarguably better and so they've kind of you know developed this skill and the people who are best at it are, are really good at taking things away so i i totally agree that there's a a craft and um that it's it's fun to to see those subtractions. I'd also say that it's fun to do it in those cases, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So like, if you think about editing, I don't know if it's fun to edit audio or not, but editing words it is, is, is fun is. for me. It's a yeah. it's a puzzle. You've got all the stuff there in front of you and you're yes. kind of working on it. And I think it's the same kind of experience for people who are editing, um, editing code or, you know, Michelangelo chipping away from the stone to reveal David, uh, you know, that kind of subtracting can be really pleasurable for the person who's doing it.
0: Well, you've, you've hit a, a, upon a very good point, insightful point, because uh, either with the written word, which I've done a lot of writing in my life, uh, as you know, you, you you good writing is basically subtracting uh, and mm-hmm. <laughs> taking that, that which is, again, superfluous that you don't need. But the same thing is true even for a, a, a radio program. Uh, we have Gina Gamboni, who's our chief editor, and uh, mm-hmm. also... Um, uh, senior producer for for watching America, but anyone who edits knows that it's it's an opportunity in a sense to play God because you are creating <laughs> a reality by extracting that which you don't want, uh, and there's a tremendous joy in that. What I'm curious about in in the writing of this book, and let me remind everyone, we're talking about the book called Subtract: The Untapped Science of Less by Dr. Lydie Klotz, who's a professor also at the University of Virginia. Um, What I'm curious about is what was the thing that surprised you the most in your research in the pursuit of writing this book?
1: So one of the things I did in my research, you know, was kind of look at this question that was the first thing you asked, Alan, which is basically, why do we think this is happening? And so, you know, any kind of behavior, in in this case, tending to add instead of subtract. There there are multiple reasons why it happens. There's never like a, a silver bullet. You know, it's a combination of hey, there's biological evolution, and then cultural evolution is 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 the second one I looked at, which is basically okay. You know, since we've been living in societies, what has kind of been, you know, uh, what has what have our has our society rewarded here? Um, So when I was looking at the cultural evolution, I was really surprised to find how fundamental adding was in even adding physical things was at the genesis of civilization. So, if, if you read what the historians and anthropologists write about ten thousand years ago, um, they they talk about these things that had to be here for for something to be considered a civilization. So, for something to have gone from hunter gatherers roaming around in groups of twenty five to larger groups coming together, and there are the the usual suspects are the things that I had known about, which are you know kind of uh, cities, organized religion, um, also uh, writing and but then there was this other thing (laughs) monumental architecture and it was basically the equivalent of the bowerbird nest it's the that and monumental architecture is defined as these things that are their physical presence is totally beyond any kind of practical function in terms of what you would think about of passing down our genes. Um, and so like the pyramids of Egypt, you know, some of these early temples, and these are examples of monumental architecture. Because imagine this, you've got these people who have just decided, okay, we're gonna no longer be hunter gatherers. And one of the first things they do is build these massive structures that take a huge amount of, of resources and, and combined efforts. and. So it was really astonishing to see how central these were to the genesis of civilization. And the theory um, is that the, the reason they were so important is because they brought people together, right? And fundamentally, mm-hmm. what's mm-hmm. happening at that time is these hunter-gatherers are turning into people who are living in, in larger groups. And the, the massive structures brought people together in two ways. One way was to build the structures. So if you're you know, if you're a group of 25, you can't build as big a thing as you can in in a, in a larger group. And so if you wanted to build a temple, you had to collaborate with some of the other groups. And then you had to be in that location for a long period of time. So you couldn't chase the food supply. So you had to think about, okay, how do we do um, farming? And so there was that like, just very practical aspect of it. And then there was also the kind of artistic awe-inspiring part of it right and so people coming together and these big objects kind of create this shared sense of of awe among the people and you know so that's a pretty well established theory and we've all culturally evolved from these civilizations that started with this massive act of adding so i would say that the that core role of monumental architecture to me was really surprising To find and also you know seems like it would be a really powerful kind of cultural force pulling us to add even to this day
0: it's interesting because um we have from an ethnographic point of view we have certain cultures that like that which is Mm -hmm. ornate uh they like to adorn themselves with fancy patterns and what have you uh Mm -hmm. i don't know if there's been any studies i presume there have been on whether or not a lot of it is geographical for instance we know people uh in warm climates like like typically have bright colored clothing because also there's dyes available to them uh, from mm-hmm. berries and various forms of vegetation. There seems to be certain needs, though, uh, in all cultures, even going back um, before uh, time is, was properly recorded. Um, we've all heard the expression that necessity is the mother of invention. So we have dolls. Uh, prehistoric dolls that are found and yet some are elaborate, more elaborate than others. They will be tooled, if you will, with various objects and devices and others are rather simple. Same applies to, you know, churns and bowls and things of this nature. Uh, Mm -hmm. Can you map out with various cultures or groups, people who would be less inclined to subtract versus those who will just naturally be inclined to want to add, 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 add at any expense?
1: No is the short answer. Um, and we, I mean, I, I do think this is a really fruitful area for further exploration, but, um, all the evidence that we have, uh, so we, and we did study groups in Japan and Germany and, uh, you know, the, the variation within the group in Germany and Japan and the United States was more than the variation between the groups. Um, so the evidence that we have suggests that there you know there isn't a cultural difference in those areas but I, I you know i it would be naive to think it doesn't play any role the differences in these specific cultures whether it's um you know kind of a love for ornate things that has some uh kind of culturally evolved basis or you know just the economic system for example i mean you, you think that you know part of what's going on here right is this prize uh um, prizing of of growth as a economic necessity right and so you know we're measuring gdp as a country we've got to grow things to that's a signal of progress and that kind of trickles down into everyday decisions about adding and subtracting and you so you might suspect that a country that had different goals for progress, you might see different things with adding and subtracting. So the short answer is no, we haven't found any cultural differences. The longer answer is that I suspect there would be some like nuanced differences, but it wouldn't change the the basic story. If you're
0: just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I'm delighted to have as my guest, Dr. Lydie Klotz. His book is entitled, latest book is called Subtract the Untapped Science of Less. Uh, you almost could, Turn the subtitle, The Untapped Science of Less, if you will allow the license, to say The Untapped mm. Science of Loss. Because <laughs> there's, a, there's a great fear that many of us have of, of I mean, losing uh, by simplifying. For instance, or, or just about every home in America and Britain and Australia and Canada and I presume Germany and everywhere else, New Zealand. Uh, the kitchen has that, that the beloved drawer, which is the junk drawer. Right. That's where Mm -hmm. everything winds up. Keys that you don't know what they go to anymore and and, and what have you. Why do we loathe to let go?
1: Yeah, that, um, that, again, is going back to Kahneman and Tversky's research that, you know, we, we, dislike losing things more than we like gaining them. Um, but we've got to remind ourselves here that what we're talking about are is not the the loss. I mean, so so their research is talking about okay, you're ending up in this situation where you have less. We're talking about situations where subtracting actually make things better. So going back to Ezra's bridge, sure, I had the he had to get rid of a block, but the the block wasn't the thing that was gained or lost. The thing that was Gained was a level bridge, Um, and so I'm so glad you brought it up, Alan. Because this is like a a mental trap that we can fall into: is thinking that less is going to be a loss. Um, But you know what we're doing is is taking away something to to create something that's actually better. Um, So it's very true that it's hard to get rid of things, but it's also um, true that what we're talking about here is is making is is less not a loss. Um, I would say. You know, we haven't talked about Marie Kondo yet, and so she's the tidying guru and can help you with your kitchen, uh, your drawer in the kitchen that's got all this stuff in it. But what she does that's really effective is um, kind of points people to this end state, right? So she she's not dwelling on the specific things that you're getting rid of, right? So, she, you know, her classic advice is get rid of anything that doesn't spark joy. So right there, she's, you know, kind of focusing you on the joy that you get. Um or that this thing is not giving you, and then she really helps people focus on the the end picture, which is this tidy living space, and that's the thing that you're gaining, um, even though it requires you to to get rid of some of these things that aren't providing any value. Does that make sense? Yes, it does.
0: Let's talk about life management. Um, I mean, there's a whole yeah. industry now with people being life coaches and things of that nature. Yeah. And um, it, it does get to the back to the issue very often of subtracting, subtracting things for our lives so that we can function. We, we went through the mania of the 1970s that I can recall, 80s, 90s of, you know, you can have it all. You can have anything. If you want it, you can have it. Just work harder, a little bit harder. Just go without mm-hmm. sleep. Just go without healthy relationships. You can have it. Uh, and I think that many people who have been, on the uh, proverbial, you know, uh, analyst couch, have learned to eliminate, that you have to eliminate to have order because there is there is chaos without it. I'm going to ask you a very dangerous question, Leidy. Uh, very hey. dangerous because, you you, the, you know, the kind of question that authors go, oh, God, don't ask that. But, I, but I'm going to ask it because I think you can pass and, and handle it. I'm looking In, forward to it. Okay, here we go. In what other ways, since your son, uh, brilliantly uh, reducing the the uh, chasm with his little bridge by eliminating the Lego. In what other ways have you allowed or witnessed in your own life the very thing that you're talking about by simplifying being of benefit to you?
1: Uh, certainly the time management I've... I think I've gotten way more ruthless in the the meetings that I allow myself to attend. Um, and I think, you know, understanding, and this is one of the reasons that I wrote the book is because for me, understanding that, you know, the, the real reason that I would, attend this marginally beneficial meeting was this desire to display competence. And it may be different for different people, but for me, it was like, if I show up to this meeting, my, you know, my colleagues are going to say, okay, that lady sure does a good job, you know, kind of showing up to whatever this, this meeting is. Um, And it's an, an immediate way to display competence, but it's not the kind of, kind of, long-term competence that i want to be displaying which is working on things like papers and advising students and, and writing books um and so i've definitely gotten more ruthless with my my meetings um one practice that i've taken up is forcing myself to when i do my to-do list also to list some stop doings and this is uh, this is fun my, my other friend, uh, and co-author on the research, Ben, uh, he was, we we're about two years into this research together. And he says, he "Hey, wrote, he art, is that
0: the article you wrote for nature? Yeah. Okay.
1: It's the article we wrote for nature. Yeah. And this is, um, and so Ben was co-author on this article for nature. So, and if you're not an academic, this is like the pinnacle of of academia and mm. not a, I can call it the pinnacle because I, you know, had never reached it before and probably won't again, in terms of having an article that's like cool enough to be in nature. But um, so we're working on all this research and Ben says, Hey, I'm taking our research to heart. My department chair asked me to be on another committee. And I said, no. And he uh, said, well, Ben, that's great, but you didn't actually subtract anything. You just didn't add. And that's some, I think that's a, a key distinction here because if the fundamental problem is that you're overbooked in your calendar, you're too busy, mm. you're not going to solve it by just saying no to things. You've got to get rid of some things. And so the stop doing list helps, me think of that and you know and it helps me take things away from my my regular routine which of course you know frees up space for other things um so those are two ways that I've done it and then one kind of counterintuitive one probably doesn't work in all situations but I've I've stopped writing down as many notes
0: yeah that's interesting why have you stopped writing notes that's very intriguing to me uh, because we work in an economy as professors with notes, words constantly.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the basic reason is because if it's important, I'm going to remember it. And uh and um, but when I started thinking about this subtracting in the three areas that we studied it were kind of physical objects and then social situations, which is like the calendar, but also the ideas. And you know, it's like I'm listening to podcasts while I'm watching the news on the. TV while I'm running on the treadmill, right? So I'm just like mm-hmm. trying to take in as much information as possible at all times. And of course, we've got to take in information. And like I the worst thing is to to be ignorant, um but I was giving myself no time to kind of process the information. And um so thinking about this in the realm of ideas and then I there, this is a there is some science to back this up that you know, if you want to remember certain things that you don't necessarily need a note to remember it. And so just kind of trusting my own, um, my own brain to work as it's intended and, um, and, and remember the big important things. And of course, you've got to take notes for things that are, are mundane. And maybe there's a five-step process for something that you need to write down and remember later. But if it's an idea, right, your brilliant idea about the, um, the simplicity of the broom, I don't have to write that down. I'm going to remember that. I'll probably use it in class next week. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I'm on there it, it goes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: So, if you had uh, an auditorium filled uh, with a capacity of say three thousand people, mm-hmm. and they were to say to us, say to you. Dear Dr. Klotz, what are the key things that I need to take away from this uh, extensive research that you have done on the importance of subtracting the, indeed, the untapped science of less? What would you say to them?
1: Well, first and foremost, stop overlooking this basic way to make change, um, and I, I hope that this this interview is kind of a first step in that direction. Uh, second, I would say. You know read or listen to the book. It's only it's seven hours and it's uh I don't think you could go through the book and still overlook this as an option. I mean I'm very purposeful in how I wrote it with the range of examples and the range of um range of uh different ways that this is happening where I think by the end people will be like okay stop stop I got it and um and then the 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 last thing that's a really practical thing that people could do after listening to this episode is to think about the places in your life where you could remind yourself to subtract so the reason that stop doing activity works really well for me is because okay here i am thinking about my productivity we go back to what the basic problem was you know ezra's bridge i wasn't i didn't think to subtract the block if i had had a reminder to subtract the block and you think well okay reminders they help with everything Um, but our research showed that when we gave people reminders it increased the rates of subtracting but it didn't increase the rates of adding so what we used it for in our research was to show that adding was redundant with what people were already thinking people were overlooking subtraction but we can use that practically and just put in place reminders for ourselves that hey here's a place where I can subtract. So the stop doing reminds me that I can subtract for my personal productivity. And you know, your listeners are smart enough to know the the key decisions that they make in their lives over and over and over again. And and how can you put in place a reminder for yourself when you go to make that decision that, Hey, subtracting is an option here. And then if you don't choose it, fine. I don't, a lot of people are like, Oh, he says that we should always subtract. I don't care. Um, I think adding is great too. I just want people to have all their options.
0: So, Looking at the psychological implications for a moment again, uh, it, it's mm-hmm. occurred to me that we're quite astonishingly stubborn people. To be willing to subtract versus to allow what we've added to remain is yeah. some, com- some form of acknowledgement that our efforts have been in vain. And we don't like to acknowledge that. So we're kind yeah, of stubborn. It was like, okay, well, no, it's got to work because I've put Bloody by gum! I've put three months into this. It's it's got to work, rather than acquiesce to the reality and say no, it's not working.
1: Yeah, both at an individual level where it's you know I've I've sunk effort, time, cost into this, and I now I don't want to take it away. And also with the this is a theory, a really good theory um, for for the that you've brought up, Alan, for the societal level of why this is hard. Right. So if you go in think about a double decker one of the examples i use in the book is this double decker freeway that was blocking the waterfront in san francisco and it took a really long time for them to get rid of it it and, took an earthquake it, <laughs> yeah, to i lived in san really francisco for 11 years it took an earthquake yeah, yeah go ahead <laughs> and people still wanted to keep it after the earthquake by the yeah. way it's like they uh but um but it makes sense right if you if you come across something in your everyday life and you don't really understand it it would be naive or in at best and probably you know uh too, it would be ignorant at worst to, to think, oh, we should just get rid of this thing if you don't even understand what it does, right? So to, to get rid of something, you have to really deeply understand why it was put there in the first place and then realize that, okay, it's not serving us well. So yeah, all these psychological factors, you know, the time and cost that's already invested, plus this just kind of good assumption that we have that, hey, if, if something's there, there's probably a, a, a fair reason for it.
0: So up comes the wall-to-wall carpeting in favor of the natural wood.
1: Oh, definitely.
0: Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> the book is entitled Subtract the Untapped Science of Less. And the author is Dr. Lydie Klotz, University of Virginia professor, former professional soccer player as well. You know, I like to talk to Americans. I like to talk to Americans who take uh, interesting uh, tacks on things, the way they, they consider them. And certainly your book. And uh, what you've applied your mind to for the last few years is an example of that. So you're an important part of the fabric of America. And I thank you so much, Dr. Lydie Klutz, being a part of Watching America for this episode. And uh, we wish you blessings. And we'd like to hear from you again with future publications.
1: Terrific. Thanks so much for having me, Alan.
0: Thank you. And God bless. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings.
1: Watching America is
0: a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.